welcome to this podcast and videocast. I'm Silky Carlo, the director of Big Brother Watch. Big Brother Watch is a UK civil liberties campaign group fighting for a free future. We're a fiercely independent, non-partisan and non-profit group who work to roll back the surveillance state, defend free speech and protect rights at a time of huge change. Our work relies on the generosity of people like you who care about civil liberties in the UK. If you can support us, please do visit bigbrotherwatch.org.uk forward slash donate to support this podcast and our work. Hello and welcome to Big Brother Watch's podcast. I'm joined today by Steve Baker, MP, a former minister and now an influential backbench MP who sits on the executive of the 1922 committee. We're speaking today in the wake of the Prime Minister's announcement to the Commons of new tightened coronavirus restrictions, expanding criminal sanctions, and even the talk of military support for the police in enforcing some of these broad new rules, uh, which is really a step up from COVID marshals. Um, Steve, I was wondering if you could just give your initial reactions to the announcement today. Well, I don't like it one bit, as you'd expect. You know, I'm a civil libertarian. That's why I've been supporting Big Brother Watch, and I have done for a while. I think you've probably got a blog post from me going back uh, a long time somewhere on your website. Um, And I've always been a civil libertarian. So I don't like it one bit, but the question isn't really whether I like it. It's whether the measures the Prime Minister's brought forward are proportionate to the coronavirus threat to the most vulnerable and um, whether things have to be done this way. So yeah, it's very difficult. If you ask civil libertarians, do you like what's going on? The answer is, of course, no. But then the prime minister doesn't like what he's having to do. Um, but does it raise all sorts of concerns for like-minded people? Yes, of course. I don't like the armed forces being used, even though I'm former forces. I like the idea of keeping the forces well away from civilian life. Not they aren't wonderful people. They're wonderful people. I'm bound to say that. Um but really, civilian life should be should not not in any sense be militarised. But the the prime minister needs the resources. Well, gratefully, the police have just said uh, the chair of the National Police Chiefs Council has just said um, that they feel that the police are very much sorry that the military are very much not needed right now to support the police in um, I don't know telling people to um stand two meters apart from each other and and, and whatnot yeah that, that, um, well, that, that's a huge relief i must have missed that announcement while i yeah. was in another meeting but yeah that's a huge relief and uh, i have to say the policing in wickham and thames valley has been pretty good uh, i've had a few complaints but um uh, how can i put this I, I have not felt that they were very reasonable complaints if i can put it that way but the most egregious policing's happened somewhere else well, of course you would say that. I mean, some of our statistics uh, suggest otherwise. I mean, nationally in England and Wales, the, the, the picture was was pretty bad for the use of fixed penalty notices for, um, for, for people around the country. And of course, now about half of them haven't been paid. So we're seeing a huge amount of non-compliance, I think a real change in, in mood. And this yeah. plays into kind of where we're at politically at the moment, um, because we are now... Uh, days away from a parliamentary vote on the renewal of the coronavirus act and a lot of people hopefully lots of your constituents as well are taking a real active interest now in the measures that are being taken and the renewal of the act before we get into that can i just pick you up one thing because i can't help it as we move on you said of course you would say that well yeah i do think that a a conservative politician ought to be able to support the police but really if i thought the police in wickham had made a pig's ear of policing the lockdown if i'd had lots of complaints from the public 
well, I'd prioritise the public view over the police. But I really don't think that the police in Wickham have done a bad job. I think they've done a good job. And it's been a very difficult job for them to do. And they do deserve my support. But you're right. There is, of course, a, a, there is of course a, an incentive to support the police uh, because it helps maintain law and order. But really, I, I, I honestly think I can say that in Wickham, I am pleased with the policing we have had. I just hope you won't... Mind That's good. No, I, I, I hope so. Um, I mean, it has certainly been, <clears throat> there's no doubt that what the police have been up against um, is, has been challenging. And, you know, it's difficult for us to keep up with these changing laws. I can't yeah. imagine what it's like for a police officer to be doing that and dealing with everyone's uh, reactions, which I think are sometimes quite rightly uh, uh, will be... Uh, uh, there will be some resistance to, to yeah. you know, to, to put it that way to, to, to some of this. We have seen a real postcode lottery of, of police enforcement. There have been some forces that have been a lot harsher. I mean, <clears throat> tenfold, twentyfold, um, more fixed penalty notices and enforcement than other forces. So, um, yeah, may, maybe yeah. your force has, has been has been particularly. Um, you, you know, I'm sorry, I've diverted you. You want to talk about the coming coronavirus act renewal? The, the coronavirus act renewal, pr precisely. I mean, it seems like a crossroads moment now, um, because initially, when the um, act were, was passed we didn't know really very much about the, the nature of this pandemic at all. Now we do. Now we're living in the context of a, a, a severe imbalance of power between citizens and the state. And it seems like a kind of question mark moment of, are we coming back to our senses? Are we going to have a, a measured public health approach? Or are we going to uh, continue this executive power grab with these huge criminal sanctions and expansive um, police and, and other state powers? Um, when you sat in the chamber as the coronavirus bill was passed, you warned that we were implementing a dystopian society. Those were your words. Yeah. Six months on, how do you feel about it? Yeah, it's the, the sort of dystopia that I foresaw. You know, the sh shifting legal basis for our life, fines for things that we would normally want to do. Um, it's really uh, appalling, you know, legislation going through being retrospectively approved. We saw Charles Walker, he wouldn't mind me saying that, Charles Walker had a moment in the chamber where even as a former chair of the procedure committee, obviously wasn't sure what he was scrutinising. Mm. And this this can't be right. We've had, uh, I think now, 100 acts of parliament used uh, to, to pass 230, I think it is, statutory instruments. It's all on the Hansard Society dashboard. I don't suppose anybody knows the state of the law at all. Um, and the idea that parliamentarians have seriously scrutinised it is for the birds. And this is not how we should, should, should be living. And I'm very clear about that. Where I suppose, as a responsible politician, I've got to have regard to the safety concerns of my genuinely vulnerable constituents. So this is where you, you, you do find it tearing frustration, because I can't just go over to where uh, Lord Sumption is. I've really admired Lord Sumption's position. At one point, he complained that no Conservative MP had taken the view he had. I think I've been as close to taking his view. I went on the Today programme and said these measures should be voluntary unless the government can prove otherwise. But um, the unfortunate reality is this, this is a real disease and it really is dangerous for people who are vulnerable to it, older people with comorbidities. And I've got a duty to them too. And... No, the fundamental reason for restricting liberty is the harm principle, the idea that if your actions will harm others, it's legitimate to curtail those actions. And people don't like it. I certainly don't like it when it's done. Um, 
but it is in principle legitimate for public health reasons to require people to conduct themselves in certain ways for the protection of other people. But, you know, one can reject that proposition, but I'd like to see them try to do that and also get elected by most people. So the, the issue then becomes, is it proportionate? Now, I, d I don't think the Coronavirus Act is proportionate. I don't think there's any justifying Schedule 21, which has the most draconian powers with the... I think it's still a complete record of failure. So I'll, I will table an amendment to say that that should not be renewed. I have to say, I don't think it will have any legal force if it succeeds. You can't repeal sections of Acts of Parliament by, uh, by passing a motion in the Commons. You have to pass an Act to do it. So I don't think it will be selected. I don't think it will succeed, but it makes a statement we ought not to, to do this. Um, I have to say, our civil liberties at the moment, the Labour Party and the SNP and frankly the Liberal Democrats are all missing in action. Everybody's so consumed by protecting public safety, they're not, they're not standing up for the rule of law. To be fair, sorry, the Liberal Democrats have called for uh, repeal and renew yesterday of Coronavirus Act powers, um, that it should be, that any emergency powers needed should be um, brought in under, for example, the Civil Contingencies Act or other statutes yeah. rather than the Coronavirus Act. But I, I completely a, take the point on sad, yeah. the opposition as a whole or the it's lack a, of. Yeah, well, it's a sad reflection on the Liberal Democrats. I'm sorry to say that there are so few of them that I didn't notice that they had said that. So I'm sorry, sorry, Liberal Democrat voting uh, listeners to this podcast. But, you know, the SNP and the Labour Party in the end are where the numbers come from if you're opposing the government. Personally, I'd like to solve a problem without actually having a division and a rebellion. I am, after all, a Conservative. But it's the point I made to the Prime Minister in the statement today. We should be having prior approval for these measures. Just like the Coronavirus Act was whacked through far too fast without scrutiny, um, the serious restrictions on our liberties which are going through should be subjected to prior debate and votes in the House of Commons so that we've got a, ch a, a chance before things happen of saying, actually, no, this isn't good enough. Well, some people would say, you know, we, there was a there was a big campaign to have this six month vote on the coronavirus act, which, as you know, we were instrumental in and, yeah. you know, hopefully led to thousands of uh, emails coming into MPs. Yes, so, you, you know, yeah, <laughs> but having then fought for that vote, how are parliamentarians going to use it? How do you think MPs are going to use it? How do you plan to use it? Well, I'm supporting Graham Brady in his amendment to the motion. But of course, we've got problems because the motion is specified on the face of the bill. So it's possible that it will be unamendable. Well, nevertheless, we will seek to table an amendment which makes provision for additional parliamentary scrutiny. And then we will plan to vote for that amendment. And I'm currently going through the process, as so often, of getting names of MPs who are warmly disposed to supporting Graham's amendment. And just so um, people listening may, may not know about this detail, but essentially the, the, the Coronavirus Act um, has the, the, the amendment that we that we um, fought for for a parliamentary review every six months. Uh, the way that the government conceded it was a kind of all or nothing vote every six months. So um, when you're saying that the, the vote is not... Um, that the motion won't be amendable. That's because the motion will be basically that the Coronavirus Act shall renew. Yeah, and shall expire, yeah. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is um, find, I think what, what you and colleagues are trying to do and what campaigners are trying to do and, and um, others in the House is look for ways that 
that might be amendable so that yeah. some of the worst powers can be struck out. But what yes, you're trying right. to do with Sir, uh, Sir Graham Brady's amendment, uh, another senior conservative backbencher, yeah. is to achieve the right for MPs to have prior votes. That's on right. So I'm afraid it all does get powers. a bit into... It does get a bit into parliamentary procedure. Look, the situation there will be people watching this who would love for us to just to vote the whole thing down, and that I'm afraid won't happen. That is not a vote that can be won. I'm, and why? Can you tell people why? Because people are worried about the safety of their constituents. Most members of parliament are not dogmatic civil libertarians. I'm probably one of the most dogmatic civil libertarians, together with David Davis, one or two others. But I think it's fair to say that this, the safety of their constituents is not protected by the Coronavirus Act. I mean, most of the restrictions that people are experiencing day to day are under statutory instruments that no one, well, that yes, never so, go through parliament well, in a okay. proper way. So, yeah, but this is, this is of course, the point, the, absolutely the heart of it. Nobody really knows what the state of the law is. It's a specialist pursuit to know it. The most draconian restrictions on our liberty, the lockdown, were implemented using statutory instruments, that is delegate powers delegated to ministers under the Public Health Act 1984, appropriately enough. So that's not even on the table with the Coronavirus Act renewal. So it is all a bit complicated. So as parliamentarians who care about civil liberties, the challenge for us is to select a course of action which has a chance of succeeding, which achieves something useful. Because at the moment, it's very clear that the Prime Minister is determined to prevent the loss of tens of thousands of lives. That is, I think, the terms in which he would see it by having these increased measures which he's announced today. And I, I know I never thought I'd be able to say this, but I know Boris Johnson well enough to know he doesn't really want to be doing this. He's doing it because he thinks he must for the protection of life. Now, in such circumstances, it's the usual conflict between the state and democracy. The state wants power. The state trusts itself to wield power. I'm trying not to sort of identify classes of individuals, but most people with power trust themselves to wield it. And we as parliamentarians have a job to say to the state, actually, no, we don't trust you to wield it and we're going to hold you to account. But we can't effectively hold the state to account when when ministers are using what's called the made affirmative procedure. In other words, they just sign a piece of paper and it becomes law and we can get fined for in the past, for example, leaving our homes. So at the moment, that, that law was made and then subsequently retrospectively approved after it had been amended. And that's a total nonsense. So to try and boil this down to something really simple. Those of us who are concerned, as your viewers will be concerned, that civil liberties are under threat as a result of the, re the policy response to this virus. We've got a narrow range of things we can constructively do. And what we are most fervently trying to achieve is prior parliamentary votes when the government seeks to restrict our liberties so that we have to have a debate. The government has to demonstrate that what it proposes to do is proportionate. And then members of parliament, in a sense, have to stand over the decision. Because at the moment, it's Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock have to stand over the decision because it's Matt signing, signing the instruments. Meanwhile, all we can do is run around moaning. And that's not where I want our democracy to be. Um, Steve, if you succeed in your in the uh, uh, amend, if the if Sir Graham Brady's amendment uh, to have more uh, parliamentary influence on the coronavirus restrictions um, that, that that are coming through um, is successful, then what do you think? Uh, what kinds of issues can you envisage there being a rebellion on, or uh, kind of parliamentary disapproval, non-approval for? 
Well, what I'm seeing is the mood amongst Conservative MPs is dramatically shifting against lockdown and restrictions. You know, we are Conservatives because we believe in freedom, usually with a radical spirit of moderation. But nevertheless, Conservative MPs overwhelmingly believe in freedom and virtue, the individual, civil society, but they believe it moderately. Um, and so what I'm seeing is a real swing against against uh, lockdown measures, partly because people of members of parliament are extremely worried about the non-COVID health costs of lockdown. They're extremely worried about people's jobs and mortgages. They're worried about children's schooling. All of these things are playing into people's mood. And so this is it's not to be underestimated, this press for parliamentary scrutiny in advance of a, a measure coming into place, because this is really where the battle is. The government knows that if they've got to persuade MPs before they do something, that is an extra high hurdle before they can clamp down. But they, of course, want power. They want to be able to clamp down at the signature of a minister. So what's really going on here is we're trying to erect an additional barrier to draconian powers ever being brought forward. But if they are brought forward, they must have democratic consent. Now, that, that, that's really what, what's going on here. What do you think was wrong with the approach of Sweden? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the approach of Sweden. It's a very brave approach. I think the problem for somebody like me talking about Sweden, of course, they didn't do nothing. They did plenty of things, is the comparators are, are, are very different. So, you know, the, the, the population distribution and the culture of the population, the culture of compliance, I think, has been cited by the prime minister is quite different. So um, I think it would have been a brave prime minister who'd adopted the Swedish model in the UK. I think I might have done it, but for any prime minister to have done it, they would have required um, the appropriate scientific advice to legitimise doing it. Yeah. You can't just ignore. You know, people have said that suggested that Boris should have had a different plan. Well, it would be a very brave prime minister in the midst of a public health crisis who ignored all of his chief medical officers across the four nations of the UK and his chief scientific advisor. And did something completely different. And that's partly why I've written a brief based on Roger Coppel's work on expert failure, setting out the incentives that scientific advisors have and saying actually you need structural reform to the way advice is provided. Because at the moment all the incentives on scientific advisors are in favour of lockdown and restrictions and invasions on civil liberty. So I don't think there's anything wrong with what Sweden did, certainly in their context, but making comparisons between Sweden and UK on death rate and hospital admissions is um, it's certainly a specialist pursuit and I don't think it's for me to do. You said that um, with more parliamentary oversight then there will be an extra um, obstacle to imposing more draconian restrictions which I believe too yep. and I really hope is true. Um, when Boris Johnson announced his kind of moonshot plan which now does seem quite remote um, but for really prevalent testing of you know millions and millions of, of, of tests every week yeah. um, that whilst uh, clearly te testing is something that has been a, a big failure and instead often criminal sanctions are relied on and restrictions are relied on because there hasn't been effective testing and tracing um, but with that kind of moonshot plan would 
that would necessitate a set of policies that a lot of people are very uneasy about, one of which would be something like a health passport. So some kind of um, digital identifier or other kind of identifier that would um, allow your tests and your kind of infectious status to be logged and tracked and scanned as you move around everyday life. Um, Is this something that is being spoken about at all in in your kind of policy circle? Well, insofar as it's been spoken about, I asked Matt Hancock about it and he's denied any conversation had taken place about it. So I know people are putting it to me in their in, in my inbox, but to be honest, I, one of the sad facts about the correspondence I'm receiving is that some of it is not not very realistic. Some of it is conspiratorial and some of it is not based in science. Uh, by the way, um, health and, health passports have been something that Matt yeah. Hancock um the words came out of out of his mouth and uh, you well, know on the on the Department of Health's website so that's something I'll, we, I'll, have we to, have I'll have to go back and by all means send me the links and I'll compare those links to what was said in a whatsapp group to me but you know I, I'm very clear that I stand for freedom um, and that does not include draconian tracking mechanisms on people's health um, the thing I mean that- I, I, t- I take your point about um, you know some people are excessively alarmed you know are, are extremely alarmed by the current situation that we face yeah. um but at, at the same time when you have um proposals for things like um digital ids and um health passports have been mooted they haven't but the plans haven't been advanced but certainly they are something that the health secretary has uh, name checked as, as as a policy idea um, and now we have the idea uh, sorry, now we have, have uh, proposals from from the Prime Minister that if we uh, we will face these restrictions for six months until there is a vaccine. Um, one of the one, something I know you will have had a lot in your inbox is fears about mandatory vaccines. Is that a red line for you? Do you think it would be a red line for your um, colleagues? Um, it's a red line for me. Yes, people ought not to be forced to take vaccines. I mean, it should be a on the one hand, we do need population immunity. So obviously for a vaccine to work, sufficient people have got to choose to uh, take it to make it work. But I don't think people should be forced to take vaccines. No, that is a step too far. You know, We're not talking about something with the infection fatality rate of an Ebola. The only way that I could see, remember the harm principle, any infringement of liberty, I'm trying to give honest answers here. So I hate all of this, all these infringements of liberty. I absolutely loathe with all my heart, and my soul and my mind. However, I've got a responsibility to the public at large. So if we were talking about something with the infection fatality rate of Ebola, then you could imagine that in order to survive as a civilization, if it was running riot through our country, you could imagine that you would have to, you might go and be sick in the gutter before you voted for it and then have to vote for it. But it's not Ebola. And its infection fatality rate is worse than flu, but it's not Ebola. And in those circumstances, I think that particularly if vaccines being produced very fast, it is a sophisticated process. While I think we can have faith in science and vaccines, I think that there is a place for people being able to say, no, I'd rather take the risk. And do you think it's something that people, uh, do you think something the government would ever consider? Well, somebody somewhere will suggest it. There are lots of authoritarians around. There's plenty of people think other people should be forced to succumb to their will. But when you say in the government, 
do I think there's any minister who would, because that's strictly speaking what we mean in Parliament when we say the government, I don't think that there is any minister who would propose it, but I'm pretty sure that somebody somewhere, bearing in mind the number of times we hear that people want draconian lockdown to be extended and kept, you know, without any regard to the economy or other costs, people want lockdown. Some of the same people will no doubt think that that mandatory vaccination is a good idea, but but I've never had it proposed to me. Mm -hmm. How do we go back from here? Um, it seems like we are rapidly losing something very fundamental to the fabric of our society. I mean, our, our daily lives have changed so much. The pattern of life, uh, social life, private life even, because of the, the extent of the, the restrictions and how much it changes um, how we live. How, how can we reclaim a kind of democracy uh, and freedom that we once knew? Or do you think that the dial has moved with some permanence? I mean, I think after 9-11, things never really went the same again. We have lived in an environment of counter-terror policy, um, which you could debate forever about, you know, the, the, the excesses or, or otherwise. Um, how much of this do you think will last and, and how do we go back? So I think, well, there's two separate questions there, if I may. So I think on the how long will it last, um, I'm afraid it probably will last until we've got a population immunity, preferably through a vaccine. Um, that is the reality, um, because the ethics of allowing very large numbers of people who are vulnerable to die uh, preclude letting the, the virus rip. That will not happen. Um, and, um, you know, I would not vote to just let it rip. We've got to have good sense for those people who are vulnerable. So, but, but in terms of a way back, the way I would say that, I would say three things to, to be a, a way back. The first is we need to change the structure of scientific advice, recognizing that we've been asking the impossible of scientists, that they are human too, and the incentives pressing upon scientists all push them towards lockdown. And that's why I wrote that uh, brief and letters for Boris Johnson, which I've been highlighting. So that's the first thing. It's to make sure that, that we don't have monopoly expert advice driving towards lockdown. The second thing I would say is we've got to have prior parliamentary scrutiny of what's done so that you don't end up with ministers deciding things, as it were, behind closed doors in the usual way that ministers take decisions um, and then being sold to the public, that instead you have members of parliament being forced to actually stand over a decision with public debate in the House of Commons. And although that's not a perfect solution, it's a lot better than ministers and officials deciding and then the rest of us getting the output. Um, and the third thing is the public have got to decide. And I would say it's incumbent on me and you and all of your viewers to make liberty attractive. And unless we make liberty attractive, all the so that people come to our way of thinking voluntarily. That is the essence of freedom. They're voluntarily coming to our way of freedom, thinking. Unless we can do that, we won't win. And that, in a sense, I'm afraid, has been the story of the last hundred years. Running around screaming, complaining about things, especially when they're complicated, isn't a successful way to get people to be attracted to liberty. Talking about conspiracy theories isn't. Undermining the basis for vaccination, not a success. So when I walked along outside number 10 earlier to go to a meeting, and I saw people blaming 5G and whatever, it does make me despair. We've got to be scientific and ra radically moderate, but make liberty attractive. And if we can make liberty attractive and say, hey, you know what? This great process of becoming, which is living, 
requires us to be virtuous and free, to seek to become more than we are. And being, being more than we are means the development of virtue. Some of that virtue includes courage. And courage means being willing to face a risk because you know you're trying to achieve something greater. Cowering in the corner, afraid of the world, is not where we ought to be as human beings who are seeking to flourish. So unless we can start talking hopefully like that, I hope that meant something to somebody who heard it, but unless we can start making liberty attractive and saying I am willing to take a risk in order to live, we will lose. I think people are um, exasperated and alarmed and yeah. I have a lot of empathy with 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 that. But I also think the important thing about liberty is that it knows its bounds and you know that in a time of emergency um, that you can't live exactly as you did before. And I think everyone would accept that. The other thing about um, liberty as well is that you, you it's it's not a purely I mean often I think is pitched as a purely uh, individualistic uh, concept and it's really not one of my concerns has been about the infringements of, of liberty as it always tends to be is that it's the most vulnerable who actually get harmed and a lot of this has been sold in uh, on, on the basis of protecting the vulnerable um, but under the coronavirus act um, the care responsibilities for local authorities has dropped. So at a time when you think that disabled people and isolated people, vulnerable people should be protected more than ever, yeah. a lot of them are actually being left adrift and not being checked on. And that's why it's disappointing that those powers haven't been revoked yet. Um, but when we're seeing that strand of um, the kind of illiberal, the lack of, um, of community spirit that runs through this kind of illiberal approach with ministers, for example, uh, saying that they would report on their neighbours for mingling. Um, Steve, are you going to report on your neighbours if you see uh, a, gather, a gathering of, of seven people? I have no plans to report on my neighbours, but I can tell you why ministers in particular and MPs in general have said what they've said. We have an obligation under the standards that we're required to uphold, to uphold the law. So strictly speaking, if you ask me, Steve, are you going to uphold the law? I've got to say, yes, I'm going to uphold the law. I'm going to comply yeah. with the law. But so that's Doesn't why mean I'm, you need to be like an agent of the state, like, you know, start no, city. So I mean, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, look, I gave a quote to the mail in which I don't know whether they used it, but I said these, this makes giant leaps towards becoming East Germany. I don't think anybody's been more strident than me but nevertheless I cannot escape my obligation to uphold the law so I can't hit sit here and say no um, that's why I've chosen my words carefully and said I have no plans to sit and, <laughs> and of course um you are um you know trying to change the law or at least yes. scrutinize it as well and that's the most important thing so on behalf of everyone um of, of all of our supporters um i mean you have done an awful lot um with us and, and for us in um scru scrutinizing uh different pieces of legislation that we've asked you to look at and you've taken forward all of our concerns about civil liberties um and you are being a real a real champion for for liberty and for um uh, human rights uh, at, at the moment in in, in oh, the Commons. So thank, thank you, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate those kind words because I know I can't quite be radical enough for all of your supporters, and I'm I'm sorry about that. I hope in this course of this podcast webcast, I've given an explanation for why that is.
I know certainly from my conversations with um, members of parliament as well, for, from all different political philosophies and different ends of the spectrum, there is a lot of concern and pushback against the way that this is being handled. And I wish that more had the courage to stand up as you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Big Brother Watch podcast. Our work completely relies on the generosity of people like you who care about civil liberties. You can help make our work stronger by supporting us at bigbrotherwatch.org.uk forward slash donate.